Hey now, you are listening to Always Be Watching. It's our discussion about what the heck myself and my good pal Chris Yates have had in front of our eyeballs recently. On the show this week, we'll be talking about three marvellous TV programs. The first one, HBO's Perry Mason. Is it as good as the original? Does anyone remember the original? We'll discuss. Also, Chris Yates is going to take us to the weird side with one Eric Andre as he endeavours to legalise everything. And then we're going to have a bit of a retrospective chat. Freaks and Geeks is 20 years old. Does it still hold up to the memories that we hold dear? Folks, we'll discuss all that and more in just a moment on Always Be Watching. This is Always Be Watching. My name, Dan Barrett, joined by... Chris Yates, good to be here, Dan. Chris Yates, you passed the test. I wasn't sure you'd get that one right. <laughs> it's probably the only thing I will get right today. Chris, I'm excited to talk about TV with you. Now, it's not like we haven't talked about TV each and every week for the last however many weeks, but the last couple of weeks just kind of sucked. But this week, I'm excited about the TV, I'm excited about the world, and I'm yes. here for the podcast. I'm in. I'm in too. I'm here for it as well. I haven't watched a whole lot of stuff, unfortunately, but what I have watched... I've got a lot of things to say about it, so that's good, right? <laughs> that's really going to help things out here, let me tell you. <laughs> now, Chris, I've watched so many things this week, but when I say so many things, mostly I had, I had like this sort of thought the other day, which is I really want to watch the TV show Undeclared. This was a show by Judd Apatow from, I'm going to say it was about 2002, 2004-ish, somewhere around there. And I'm like, I really want to watch that show. But I thought, can I actually watch that show without watching Freaks and Geeks first? Because they really are like a companion pair of TV shows. And so I went back and I rewatched Freaks and Geeks. And so I got some very strong thoughts about that. When I met you um, the first time, you did nothing but talk to me about how I needed to watch Undeclared and how my life wasn't very fulfilled and because I hadn't watched Undeclared. Uh, was this I went right? on for quite a few years. I watched one episode of Undeclared and I was like, oh, that's pretty good. I never watched it again. <laughs> oh my God. You're a monster. <laughs> You're an animal. Okay, look, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm I might gonna, have watched a bit more of it. I'm just going to shift conversation. I'm going to take us to a little place called HBO, Home Box Office. They've got a brand I've new TV show, Chris. It's called Perry Mason. Now, Chris, I've heard of that too. you've heard of Perry Mason. Have you ever seen Perry Mason before? Not necessarily the new one, just Perry Mason generally. Look, I probably, but not not in any way that it um, rings anything more than the vaguest of bells. I could recognize, I could pick him out of a lineup, which is something that Perry Mason would do himself, I think, or set up a lineup or something. No, you probably would, because um, he was a lawyer and he's not a cop who sets up lineups. <laughs> well, this is, okay, so now we've established my um, familiarity with Perry Mason. Let, let me explain the judiciary to you. <laughs> Have you ever seen the beginning of Law and Order? Because it explains it quite succinctly. I like the song. The Perry Mason song? From Law and Order. Oh. No, the Law and Order song. I'm always... So, no, I don't know. Do yes, know... I understand how the legal system works, Dan. Question, do you know the theme to Perry Mason? Like the old school theme? No. They don't make TV like this anymore. So this sounds like a horror film. It's just old. That's how all old music sounds. 
it's musicology kind of, 101. It's weird to me that this theme was never turned into like a dance track, kind of in the same way that like the X-Files theme in the mid-90s became like a dance hit for a while. <laughs> I, I bet you put that on a CD single. Yeah. Like it'd be myself and that other weird guy who'd buy it. <laughs> anyway, Chris, Perry Mason. I deliberately want to talk about old school Perry Mason for a moment because I grew up and I watched a lot of Perry Mason when I was a kid. Like, you know, when I was like maybe eight to 10 years old, it was on first right. thing in the morning. And I just watched a lot of Perry Mason. Like, there was no reason I should be watching a show from, you know, like 50 years before I was born. But I was still going, you know what, I'm really enjoying this as a thing that I just used to do in the mornings. And so Perry Mason's been a part of my viewing habits. Well, part of my viewing history, my, um, you know, viewing DNA, I guess, ever since then. And it's always surprised me to realize that Perry Mason pretty much doesn't exist in the pop culture at all. Like, he's not existed. He must have been a... You were a strange kid. Oh, yeah. I was very weird. <laughs> Good thing I grew out of that. Hanging out of the playground, trying to find other kids to chat about Perry Mason with you? Oh, maybe I did find other kids to talk about Perry Mason with me. <laughs> they were just hanging around with a really strange bunch. But Perry um, Mason, like, look, uh, considering the success of Perry Mason, it doesn't really seem to have much of a pop culture imprint. So let me just explain about the success of Perry Mason. And I didn't get up the stats here. I probably should have. But the thing that you have to understand about Perry Mason is, first of all, wildly successful TV show. Like, it lasted, like, years and years, a whole bunch of episodes. It was... Uh, I'm not even sure if it was a number one 271 show. episodes. Yeah, 271 episodes. Went from 1957 through to 66. Okay, so, like, that's an extensive number of episodes. Hugely successful TV show. It was a spin-off from a highly successful series of books. I want to say there was maybe about, like, 85 of those. And it was from Jeez. this guy named Earl Stanley Gardner, who went on to become the showrunner of the TV show and was writing these books at the same time concurrently as he was doing the TV show. Wild. So, you know, he put out a whole bunch of Perry Mason stories. And admittedly, a lot of the episodes and some of the books were really retelling the same story over again from different perspectives. And there wasn't a whole lot of originality. He really lent into the format quite significantly. But, you know, he was certainly outputting a huge amount of content. And these weren't just, like, little novellas. These are, like, proper, like, novels. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the thing to keep in mind as well is that it wasn't just a TV show. There was also a radio serial, which went for quite a number of years, that I think that... I don't think he was as closely involved in that as he was the TV show. So the radio serials has a bit of a different flavor, and I don't think he was so mm. keen on that. There's also a whole bunch of movies of Perry Mason. It was like about four or five films before the TV show. And again, uh, Gardner wasn't involved in those to the point that, you know, he was, you know, want to try to avoid some of the mistakes that he thought those films made when it came to TV. Mm. But even so, uh, also the books, keep in mind, these aren't just like a series of books that were out there. If you actually look at the highest, like, uh, like book sales, the you know, just in terms of the volume that each of these editions sold... Uh, pretty much, I think you've got, like, the Bible, and then Perry Mason's, like, a close sort of third or fourth in that list. Wow. Like, you know, this is a huge success. Cuts to 2020, and no one talks about Perry Mason anymore. I mean, there have been a few attempts to revive Perry Mason over the years. There was a series in the 1970s called The New Perry Mason, and that sort of came and went. There was a series of TV movies through the 90s that brought Raymond Burr back from the TV show, along with Barbara Hale... And I think the other guy whose name I've forgotten, uh, William Hopper. Is that the guy? Sounds believable. Sounds feasible. Yeah. I don't know if he was back for the movies or not. But anyway, like, you know, brought back the original gang. And, you know, they were obviously, you know, um, seasoned, I guess, by that point. 
Uh, Raymond Bird died, I think, uh, two films before they finished remaking the Perry Mason films. So, like, they had a series of films, and they're like, well, you know, we've already sort of written them. We've already got the plans to keep on going with the Perry Mason films. Why should we stop the death of Perry Mason? Like, why should they interrupt us making these TV movies? Which I just thought was an interesting creative choice. But anyway, Chris, what I'm trying to say is Perry Mason, really big deal, has been a huge part of pop culture, but also no longer exists in pop culture. Can I give you some facts about the books? Hit me. Um, the Perry Mason book series is the third biggest selling series of all time behind um, on, behind only R.L. Stein's Goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. And the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling. That's, that is incredible. The rest of this list is pretty amazing too. Berenstain Bears at number four. But I won't get into more of it than that. But yeah, that is fascinating to me. So that is more than 100 million copies, the approximate sales of which they are saying between 1933 and 1973 when they were published. Um, but all up, it sold over 300 million books. That is nuts. Anyway, there's a brand new TV show being made for home box office, the HBO. This is a long gestating project, so originally it was going to be Robert Downey Jr. starring in this, but Robert Downey Jr. got a little bit older, and I guess maybe his interest waned a little bit, but he's still on board as an executive producer. Uh, the gentleman who was responsible for the True Detective series. Uh, did you ever watch True Detective, Chris? I watched the first season, loved it. Episode one of season two, and I gave up. I kind of feel that you made the right choice. <laughs> it wasn't just slack. No, uh, but anyway, the guy that made, well, wrote the three seasons of uh, True Detective, Nick Pizzolatto, he was on board to be creating this Perry Mason 2020 series. He ended up leaving the project for whatever reason. I think he got involved in season three of True Detective, and so he just kind of focused on that and not this project that seems to be going nowhere. Fair enough. Anyway, it's actually finally come about. The series has launched, and here's the thing, Chris. I think when you're talking about a bit of established IP, which Perry Mason is definitely that, you've got two thresholds that needs to be met. So any any IP needs to meet these mm -hmm. two thresholds. The first thing is, is it a good TV show or movie or whatever you're talking about? Like, is it good? I think is the fundamental question. But then the other one, because you're dealing with IP, is does it meet the expectations that are held by the IP being adapted? So the second threshold isn't really an issue of quality at all. Okay, so a lot of old IP is just kind of like old and dated and often not as good as people remember it actually was. But what we look for is like the essence of the property. And like, is the essence of the property being met? Or at least our perception as to what the essence of the property was. And sure. so, for example, I think about like maybe the Charlie's Angel reboot from a couple of years ago. It didn't need to be as good as the original show because the original show was awful. Yes. Okay, however... Did it sort of meet the essence of what we remember? Like, was it kind of the... Uh, like, Drew Barrymore and co, they kind of had to capture the fun essence of the three female agents or whatever the hell they were. Okay, like, you just kind of had to have that spirit of the show. Did it capture that? And it did, and so we kind of like that as a reboot. Mm. And so that's kind of the threshold that an IP remake needs to meet. So, the question to ask here is, is the Perry Mason 2020 show good TV? And I think the answer is yes. Like, it looks gorgeous, it's got really strong performances, uh, the script's fairly strong, uh, the show just sits together really, really well. Um, I kind of wish that Perry Mason, the character, was a little bit more engaging, but he's interesting enough, and, you know, I'm certainly going to be tuning in for episode two next week, and, like, I'm there for the run of this series. But the other question is, is Perry Mason a good Perry Mason TV show? And the answer to that is, fuck no. <laughs> That's a very, yeah. So, why not? Okay, so here's the thing. Perry Mason, the one thing that you know about Perry Mason, despite the fact that you may have never watched this before, is it's a courtroom drama series. 
and Perry Mason's a lawyer. Well, I thought he was a cop. Well, see, this is the problem, Chris. He's not a cop, he was a lawyer. <laughs> it's all right, I'm on board now. Sorry, continue. NYPM is what I always say. Know you're Perry Mason. So Perry Mason was a lawyer. He used to challenge the authority quite a fair bit because that's what a lawyer does, if, especially if you're a defense lawyer and you know, you're trying to you know, get your clients off. He's a lawyer. The new TV show has him as a private detective who is working for a law firm. And at some point throughout this first season, he's going to actually graduate and become a lawyer. Even though in this first episode, we see no uh, pretense that he's interested in being a lawyer at any possible point. But he's just like a down and dirty PI. Wow. And the thing is, as a TV show about a down and dirty PI in, I think it'd be like 1940s Los Angeles that we're currently in, like that's kind of fun. It's like a really sort of cool setting. But I mean, this could just as well not be called Perry Mason as much as it could be just <laughs> a TV show based on like Raymond Chandler's books, like could be like the long sleep for TV show. And it would be just as valid a TV show as it is just as valid a Perry Mason series, because in no way is it really related to Perry Mason. Do you think they, um, is it, is it being Perry Mason? Is that giving it extra gravitas or I, I would be shocked if people were hanging out for a new Perry Mason show. That's the weird thing. Like nobody other than myself and those other three weirdos are hanging out for a Perry Mason show. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not like there's a, there's no thirst for Perry Mason, the TV series right now. Like it's a name that'll catch some attention because people know what Perry Mason is, except for you who thought he was a cop, but yeah. generally people know who he is. And so, like, people go, oh, Perry Mason, that's kind of interesting, but it's not really a draw card. Like, no one remembers the old show. Are we drawing from the texts? Are the stories based on the books or the shows, or are they brand new stories? No, in all the books, in all the TV shows, he was always, a, like, lawyer. Are we, are we building up to basing it on the shows when he becomes a lawyer? By the end of the first season, he will be a lawyer. So do you think by that point, then they'll start digging into the, the vaults of... Like, who knows? But like, I've watched <laughs> the first episode and it is not Perry Mason. And like, that's fine. It's not like I'm really necessarily holding a candle for Perry Mason. It, does, it definitely sounds like you are, <laughs> but... <laughs> but no, I mean, the thing is that if you sit down to watch an IP, like a thing that's based on IP, it should be based on the IP. Yeah, that does make sense. I'm trying to think of other examples where they've done this, where you've got the name of the character or something like that, but everything else has changed because it does happen a bit, but it just does seem so weird and pointless, doesn't it? And the thing is that things, look, here's the thing. What worked in 1940s, 1950s, 1960s American pop culture doesn't necessarily work for 2020. Like, it's not like you could just adapt something straight. You need to make changes to it. You need to evolve it. You need to make sure that the politics suit the moment. Like, there's all sorts of things that you need to do of to course. update a program. If you think about, like, say, Battlestar Galactica, okay, if you watch, like, the original series and then they rebooted it 25 years after the TV show had gone to air initially, when that happened, they updated it so it became a bit of an allegory for the war on terror that was taking place at the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was definitely a very strong update to the show. Like, it didn't quite look and feel exactly like the old one did. But if you go back and watch the old ones, you still kind of understood where the blueprint for it was and it totally. came forward. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and that's kind of what a good IP translation should be doing. Whereas this, it's really taking Perry Mason by name and not really doing much to like capture the spirit of what Perry Mason was. Is the Perry Mason character similar in his mannerisms and style to his former namesake? Okay, before I ask that question, do you think I'm going to say yes? <laughs> no, I don't think you're going to say yes. <laughs> In no way, the same character. Like, he doesn't even have the same... Like, Perry Mason was a fairly sort of buttoned-down guy in the 
TV show and presumably the books as well, which I've not read. But he was a fairly buttoned-down guy. He was a fairly sort of straight lawyer, but he was a guy that sort of strove for, you know, getting to the truth of the situation. And every Perry Mason episode, at least the TV show, was very much like those, uh, like, classic sort of Agatha Christie-style stories where it will end with everyone in a parlour and there'll be some sort of shock revelation that's going, but it was really... And then you swing around, it's like, him! And then, you know, the story completely changes and you understand what's taking place then and he'll take you through the various steps as to what's going on. It was like a parlour, but in a courtroom. And so he'd yeah. have someone on the stand and he'd get some sort of surprise, like, revelation happen. And suddenly then the story would come alive because you'd understand what it was that led to that and whatever. But, like, it's not like he's a buttoned-down guy who's, like, holding information back. Like, that doesn't happen at all. He's just a PI going through the motions. It's very, very strange. It is super peculiar. I was wondering whether um, you can think of other ones that have, where this has been done, but it's been successful. So, you know, can we can we borrow the IP and still make it something completely different and still still work? Look, I mean, I'm sure there's examples and nothing's really coming to mind. The only thing that's really coming to mind as a complete sort of revamp of the idea in terms of like the texture of it all is, have you ever heard of a TV show called Batman starring Adam West? (laughs) Ah, yes, I have. So, I mean, Batman was particularly interesting in that essentially it was 1966 when that show launched. And so they end up taking the Batman bit of IP, which was a comic book character, as well as a character that had been adapted into radio serials and movie serials. Okay, so before you went and saw a movie, you'd see like a Batman short. And I think there was like about two seasons of a Batman serial that played at some stage. Mm. Maybe just like one season. Uh, But basically, Batman was a bit of a dead, it was dead IP. No one really cared about it at all. But through college campuses across the US, they started watching the old Batman movie serials with a bit of an ironic detachment to it in a 1960s level of irony. And so Batman became a bit of a hip thing that the college kids were watching. The producers, William Dozier of, like the producer of Batman, William Dozier, he's like, oh, the kids are watching this. I wonder if there's something to this. So he ends up rebooting the Batman premise, but instead of just being sort of like a straight sort of creature of the night, which is what Batman kind of was, they turned him into like a pop culture character and thought, well, he's a comic book character. Let's create a comic book TV show. And so it was very light and fluffy and funny and tapped into the irony of like college kids at the time, because that's kind of what had germinated the uh, Mm. enthusiasm for Batman again. So like that was kind of a complete, complete 180 of what the character was. But even so there were still elements of the Batman character that carried over from, you know, prior to that. The back like suit, compl- for example. <laughs> yeah, or well, the fact that his name is, you know, Bruce Wayne and, you know, his parents had been killed and it prompted him to become Batman. He's got his sidekick and, you know, there's still the elements. You can still see the aspects of the character carry over, even though it's radically different. Here's a question for you. Does the new Perry Mason wear a hat? He wears a hat, confirmed. There you go. Okay, here's the other thing as well. I would have been completely happy to say, you know what, I'm willing to go on this ride entirely. And look, frankly, I'm happy to go on a ride, whatever. So Of course you are. It doesn't even matter. But I'd be like completely on board and I wouldn't even be complaining that much if they just used the theme song. I just feel like reworking the theme song somewhere in there. But even so, they've still got like other old-timey music, but they don't use the theme song. Yeah, it's very odd, isn't it? Just give me a bit of that. A bit of that to get the... Get the Perry Mason juices flowing. Get the nostalgia flowing. Oh, well, this is interesting. So you still like it, but it's not really Perry Mason. That's what you're saying. That's exactly it. Like, it's a perfectly fine TV show. And I think people should check it out because it's really quite good. Like, it's really nicely shot. And if you're... 
there was a bit of a discussion I saw around a place which was saying, is this of a standard of an HBO series? Does it have any Sopranos in it? Oh, I can't remember any Sopranos characters cropping up in this. But that's probably a good thing because Sopranos is very much Jersey accents, whereas this is set in Los Angeles, so you can't really... People travel, Dan. People travel. Uh, is it an HBO show? And I don't think it's necessarily of that sort of HBO level of textual interestingness. Sure. But it's still very good television. I don't think people are going to be disappointed by the show. Unless you're going into it going, man, I'd love to watch myself a Perry Mason TV show. <laughs> Anyone expecting Perry Mason when they sit down to watch Perry Mason will be sorely disappointed. Exactly. So anyway, Perry Mason, it's available now to watch on your HBOs in Australia. It's on a Fox Hill. Excellent. Well, it's uh, there's absolutely no possible way whatsoever to segue into the show I wanted to talk about, which is the new comedy special from America's sweetheart, Eric Andre called legalize everything do you remember the show cops did you guys ever watch the show cops <laughs> is it just me or is reggae the most inappropriate music they could have picked to open up the show cops you can't slap reggae over police brutality footage and call it a day you can't, that's not an intro for her show. The intro to cops is like, you're under arrest, you unarmed, innocent black teenager. Boom! Jamaica Mon Gong downtown. Rastavari. Welcome to the island of peace and purity. Just my boots, you disenfranchised transgender prostitute. Boom! Jamaica is a tropical island. Our national currency is the delicious coconut. <laughs> this is a system invented by rich, white, Christian, heterosexual businessmen. And if you don't match that description, then it is my job to subjugate and oppress you, motherfucker! For I am your judge, jury, and executioner! <laughs> So Chris, this is the new Netflix special with one Eric Andre on stage pontificating about the world. Absolutely. Now, if you're not familiar with Eric Andre, he has had a few little bit parts in various shows around the place. Um, what was the show he was in, the sitcom he was in? Where is the... Okay, so he... He's a bit interesting to me in that you see some of the stuff that he's been doing, like the Eric Andre show, which is like an adult swim, late night, like a weirdo, uh, very sort of stoner-friendly, like just oddball comedy series. And his, like his comedy just feels so like hip and removed away from mainstream TV entertainment. But he's also someone who's more than happy to sign his name to appear in sitcoms and yeah. just like be part of the general home entertainment machine. So he was in the sitcom... And I've just forgotten the name after going through that long-winded thing. Uh, the B from Apartment 23. Yes, that's right. Um, and he was also one of the voices in the Matt Groening uh, cartoon, of which I've already forgotten the name of. Disenchanted. That's not what it's called. Disenchanted, did you say? Yeah, with Disenchantment. 
Disenchantment, that's it. Yes, and yeah. he played one of the stars in that. So, yeah, he's obviously... He's also um, in the FX uh, comedy series uh, Man Seeking Woman. Oh, that's right. Man Seeking Woman was great. I forgot about that show. That was probably where yeah. I... That was where I first realized he was more than just the weirdo off, off Adult Swim. I've talked about <laughs> his stuff on here before a few times. Uh, the Eric Andre show, the sort of pretend late night kind of... Uh, I don't even know what you do. It, it's like a late night talk show with him and Hannibal Buress and... Uh, they interview people. So I guess it's like a late night show. It goes for 15 minutes though, instead of the standard hour. And it is the most insane program I've ever seen. And probably up there with wonder shows. And as one of the absolute only times I thought that I might actually die from watching a show from losing oxygen to my brain, or at least pass out. I think I did pass out once from laughing too hard at the show. It's insanely funny. Uh, it one of the main things I was interested in going into this special is to see how his comedy comes across as a stand-up comedian, because the, despite him doing like pretend monologues and things in his comedy show, it's still very much um, a lot of the humor and a lot of the kind of impact comes from the very Tim and Eric style of editing and the, uh, you know, surreal stuff and the over the top violence and smashing of things. So I was very intrigued to see how that would, how he would translate without any of that stuff, just him and the microphone and the stool or whatever. And I'm, I just thought it was very funny. <laughs> I thought he did it. I thought he did it very well. Um, like he, he is a stand-up, but like much like yourself, I don't really know him as a stand-up. I know him for being this sort of metatextual, interesting TV presence. Yeah. And I guess you could see how he, uh, you know, yeah, he was very, very comfortable, obviously in that stand-up role. And you can see how his act you can sort of retrospectively see how his act must have developed from there and how he figured out what worked and, you know, how he could yell at people's face and stuff um, for, for huge comedic effect. And, and, you know, and his late show also had elements of like prank stuff and there was a lot of hidden camera stuff and a lot of, you know, him harassing people out in the real world, which drew a bit of, um, you know, a bit of criticism in, in some ways, but yeah, watching that come across and, and also watching that come across into the sort of stand-up format I thought was really interesting when I wasn't just doubled over laughing. And, of course, the other thing is he's, um, you know, been very uh, – he, he's a bit of an activist on, on the social media and he, and he certainly um, is very politically active and uh, as is Hannibal as well. Um, you know, Hannibal, of course, famously brought down Bill Cosby really – in the in the real, in the truest sense of what happened there, it was funny oh, to really hear. Did. Yeah, so, so it's really funny to hear Eric Andre make jokes about Bill Cosby and this thing straight up. Um, obviously, that cops thing. I think I saw the trailer for that. Uh, that was that bit of audio that you played from the cops TV show. That was from the trailer that they had on Netflix. That I think I saw the very day that cops was announced um, that it had been cancelled. So it was interesting timing with all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So this is apparently a bit that he's been doing on stage, like since almost the beginning of him doing stand up. Yeah, right. Like he, he's yeah, been just refining be it and working it through. But yeah, like he's like I heard an interview with him just talking about it that you know he essentially he had two things with Netflix that were sort of a little bit sort of I guess timely, which is that bit which made its way into the trailer. I know what the other at, bit you could say. <laughs> well, at the very beginning of the special, they do a filmed bit where he's out on the street, and I haven't seen it, but is he dressed as a cop? And yeah, he's so trying he's, to sell weed to people. Is that he's the... in a he's in a police car, and the police car just sort of crashes into the a crowded a kind of area on the street, and he kicks a bunch of beer bottles out of the police car and just kind of rolls out onto the ground with a bong, 
and then starts offering people bong hits on the street, most of which, um, you know, run away and look terrified, except for until there's one nice boomer lady at the end who's like, is that really marijuana in that? He's like, sure is, ma'am. She's like, I'll have a hit on that with you, boy. <laughs> and she has a hit with him. But that's very, that's how the show starts. But yeah, I, I read a little thing where he was saying that, you know, he did start to have the Netflix started to have the conversation with him and uh, where they were like, do you really think that, you know, is this appropriate at this time while America is burning? And um, he was like, yes, of course, that's the perfect time for this, to, for this exact thing to happen. Like, I can't see him, but a more appropriate time to see it. So, yeah. And that's very indicative of kind of the out there punking people in, in public stuff that he does. Um, and, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of stand-up comedy and I was kind of like, I would much prefer to see a whole bunch of that stuff or, you know, anything kind of produced with a bit of story more than I would rather see someone with a mic. But on this occasion, I am very grateful for the opportunity to sort of see him in that mode and regretful that I missed the opportunity to see him very recently when he came out. I, I think that was before the COVID. Uh, it was. So this show's probably happened. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Did you know that if you put the words Eric Andre next to each other, they fit perfectly into the words American dream. You have to kind of write it down for that to make sense, but have a look at it and do it later and you'll be, you'll be quite shocked. Uh, so anyway, as a, I'm a much bigger Eric Andre <laughs> fan than you, have you, you, you haven't watched it then. I thought you were going to get around to watch it. I haven't watched it yet. I was going to, but then I got distracted by watching a whole bunch of Freaks and Geeks. <laughs> Perry Mason. Oh, Freaks and Geeks, right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I've also got the episode two of Perry Mason. I still haven't watched that yet either. This I'd love to hear it. I was by the Freaks and Geeks. <laughs> I'd love to hear like a kind of a, a more um, traditional stand-up com- comedy fans take on it that hasn't seen it. Um, because it's quite, it's quite stupid and he's quite, um, you know, he, he is quite over the, uh, he's quite over the top. But for me, Look, it's a big must watch. Here's the thing. So I'm not a huge fan of sketch comedy generally. So occasionally I'll sort of be in the mood for it, but often I find it sort of fairly lacking. Um, and I appreciate what Eric Andre does isn't really sort of strictly sketch comedy in the way that most other shows tend to do sketch comedy. So yeah. like that's an entirely sort of separate thing. But when it comes to stand-up, I've always been very fond of stand-up as a mode of entertainment. But I have to say my interest in stand-up recently has really diminished quite dramatically. And I think it's maybe because there's just so much of an abundance of it. I was going like, to say, it's, it's a bad time for that to happen. There's so much out there. You would have been really happy. But yeah, I can I think see I'm, that. I think I've just burned out on it. And the only stand-up I've really been enjoying lately is when stand-ups come out and actually do something really interesting with the form of stand-up. And so mm. from the trailer I've seen of Eric Andre, I was a little bit enthused by that because it seemed like there was a bit more creativity with where the camera was placed and it wasn't strictly man on stage sitting in, with like audience sitting in front. But it seemed a little bit more lively with people in sort of balcony seats sort of overlooking the stage. And it seemed sort of very sort of um, very youthy. Like there was an energy yeah, to yeah. it in a way that I don't find most sort of traditional theatres where I stand up uh, performers. Yeah. And it seems to be quite a small crowd too, which I think is probably where he would probably work his best. And, you know, it's not a tiny audience, but it's certainly not a stadium. And it's certainly not even as big as the venue that he played Um in Sydney when he, when he played here. So uh, yeah, that's it. That's, that's interesting to want to take it down to that level, but it probably works a lot better. And that sort of smaller, most things probably work a lot better when you've got that kind of closer interaction and stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really quite curious about seeing this in a way that I'm just generally not with a lot of stand up, just purely because like they're not really innovative, innovating, not necessarily the form of stand up as much as the presentation of the stand up. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll be looking. I'll be interested in your take on that. Um, but that's about all I got to say about it. Eric Andre. Just very quickly. Everything. At the very beginning, we were talking about all the like normcore stuff that he'd done, but we hadn't really sort of mentioned anything that was like too normcore. We like kind of picked out the cool things that we liked. <laughs> Have you found the other stuff he did? Well, here's a few things that he has done over the years. So one of his first appearances is in two episodes of Cobra Enthusiasm. So he played a PA during the Seinfeld season of Curb. Oh, get out. Which I didn't realize. I'm going to have to go back years. and check those out. But he's also yeah. done like a Big Bang Theory. He's done a Hot in Cleveland. Uh, he did... Wow. Uh, tw- what was it? Um, 26 episodes of Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. Uh, he was in the movie Inland Empire. Uh, he was in eight episodes of Two Broke Girls. Two Broke Girls. That's what I was thinking. You know, he's done like an American Dad. You know, he's kind of... Uh, he was in The Lion King. He did a voice in the most recent Lion King update as well. Awesome. I'll have to watch that. Uh, he's in the movie Rough Night. <laughs> so, you know, he's been lots of, sort of very sort of general normy sort of things. Yeah. And for such a weird dude. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Wow. He is in Two Broke Girls. I had to just Google that. I thought he made a joke about it in the... Um, in the stand-up and I thought he was joking but no yeah bonafide definitely in it anyway Chris I really want to talk about a little TV show called Freaks and Geeks I don't want to get naked in front of other guys well who does you know how many men have seen me naked in my lifetime a lot do you think I'm comfortable with it no but I live with it I just don't want them to tease me oh who would tease you alright look Here's what you do. You tell them you're proud of your body. That'll show them. Sam, you have a beautiful body, doesn't he, Harold? Yes, I just said he had a beautiful body. Those other boys are probably just jealous. Lindsay, tell your brother what a beautiful body he has. Mom, Mom. Lindsay? What? Your mother asked you to tell your brother that he has a beautiful body. So stupid. Lindsay, tell him. It's not going to help him. Lindsay, just say the words. It'll make him feel better. Sam, you have a beautiful body. You're an Adonis, a slab of beef. If I wasn't your sister, oh my God. Lindsay, can it. See, sweetheart? Okay, so... Freaks and Geeks. I can't imagine there's anyone listening to this podcast who's unfamiliar with Freaks and Geeks. Uh, but if if you don't know the show at all, this is a show which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. So it debuted back in September 1999, but the show got split up and just like destroyed by the network and they just dropped in episodes throughout the next year. They just sprinkled it in as like sort of, wow. you know, two or three weeks here, you know, another two or three weeks there, a single episode here this month. And then, you know, let's rest it for the next five months and then drop another three episodes. So, you know, this show was not necessarily treated well by the network by any possible means. Uh, obviously it got cancelled after 18 episodes. They can't, the guys making the show and the guys making it uh, Judd Apatow, Paul Feig, you know, essentially the people that became the who's who of comedy filmmaking for like the next 20 years. Uh, they essentially had a bit of an inclination that, well, an inkling that the show was going to get cancelled pretty quickly. So the final episode of the show actually doubles nicely as a final episode for the show. So it doesn't sort of, you know, end out of nowhere, which is kind of nice. Now, I've got a theory when it comes to TV shows, Chris. You might be surprised to think, no, I've got a theory here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm shocked. But I've got this theory, which is that TV shows operate on a 20-year spectrum. 
so when a TV show finishes, for like the next 10 years or so, it's not that the show is unwatchable, but it's just not really that exciting, like you're not really that into it. But I kind of feel that at the 20 year mark, it kind of like matches like the sort of taste, like people's palates again, are kind of ready for what that show is offering. And if for you... sure. Well, they say this with all kinds of art and they say it with fashion and with um, yeah. music as well. The, the 20 year cycle is definitely a thing. Look, absolutely. And it's not necessarily the beginning of the series run that becomes 20 years because TV runs for like years and years. But just like when a series comes to an end, I kind of feel there's a 20 year gap from that point inwards. Mm, yeah. Interesting. And so, I mean, if you think about like shows like Friends and all that kind of thing, which are, you know, fairly back and like that back and popular, like it's been 20 years roughly since those shows went off the air. Like that's just kind of where we're at. Like it's, it just takes 20 years to, you know, get back in. And it's not a firm 20 years, you know, but it's thereabouts. No, of course not. But anyway, Freaks and Geeks at 20, I was wondering sort of what it's, you know, what the tone of it would be like, would I actually still be interested in it. And I was really concerned that the show when it launched felt sort of very, it was unusual and it was a little bit sort of more earthy and emotionally connected than most teen dramas at the time. And like, it was a fairly meaningful experience for a lot of people who watched it. And I, like teen shows generally, I think have just gotten better over the last 20 years. And with mm, the TV that seemed like really um, cutting edge back then, still feel that way now, would it just actually feel really surface in a way that you hadn't really seen it as previously? And so that was kind of on my mind as well. And I'm happy to report after watching all 18 episodes over three or four days, I've been watching a lot of Freaks <laughs> and Geeks lately, like it holds up remarkably well. Uh, the first like maybe 10 episodes, like seven to 10 episodes, it kind of feels sort of what you remember the show as and... It's, it's a little bit surfacey in times and it's not really like an amazing program, but it's still very good. And you're into the performances and there's lots of good one-liners around the place and like it really holds you in there. But like the back end of the series, like the second half of it, it is such an exceptionally good TV show. And it's just in yeah, like well. every two to three episodes, they just like stepped it up to like another level where they were just like on it. to the point where they've got this final run of four episodes, which are, I think maybe better than like any other TV. Like it was just, I was just blown away at how good these episodes just held together and how much it actually sort of builds on the world that had been created by the show leading up to it. So if you don't know the show, this is a series set in high school in 1980s in Michigan. Uh, there's a, a group of like, uh, be like 15, 16 year olds, so like grade 11 kids effectively. And they're the freaks. Like these are the burnouts. These are the guys that they're not going to go on to college at all. They're barely going to go on to be able to actually get a job after high school. Mm. Like, you know, these are definitely the no hopers. You've got this My girl. people. Yeah, your people. You've got this girl named Lindsay who, you know, she's a straight A student. You know, she's a very sort of straight edge kind of young lady. And she's kind of had a bit of a rebellion against uh, what was expected of her. And she's decided she wants to start hanging out with the uh, burnouts. So, you know, Lindsay's my people. <laughs> and that's in how you're hanging out with me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then you've got the other people that are also my people, which is the titular geeks of the show. And these are Lindsay's brother and his best two mates who are, like, they've just entered high school. I think they're in the second year of high school, effectively. And it's sort of looking at the world from their perspective. So you've got the freaks and you've got the geeks. And every episode of the show is really running on two different strands of storyline. And very rarely do the storylines actually ever cross over. But at no point do they ever feel like they're textually different at all. Like, it really feels like it's of a piece. Even though, like, these storylines could not be more different. Because the experiences of someone who's in grade 9 to two or three years later, 
like just in terms of what they're interested in socially and where they're sort of physically at, like it's an entirely different world. And these two very different shows operate in this beautiful sort of harmonious like hour of television. How old were you when you first watched it? Okay, so the first time I saw it, okay, so if it started in 99, I was 19, but we get shows a little bit later in Australia, but... I remember seeing the very, like, the first time I ever saw Freaks and Geeks was actually the very last episode of the show. And that was being played at, like, 11.30 at night so on Channel 9. And I would have seen that, like, maybe in, like, 2000. Hmm, interesting. When did I meet you? Uh, 2004. Hmm. One of the things that was striking about you when I met and your small group of friends <laughs> who I became quite friendly with was yeah, that yeah. You, were all such, uh, you were all such nerds. And um, there was no, uh, but you didn't seem to have any hangups about being nerds. And uh, you certainly, you seemed empowered with your nerddom in a way that the nerds of my generation uh, that I used to beat up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, certainly didn't have. And I'm just wondering whether any any of that had, uh, whether whether Freaks and Geeks played some part in um, giving you some confidence to be the burnout that, the, the nerdy burnout that uh, you you and your mates seem to be to me. Look, I don't think so, but I would also say that maybe in those mid two mid 2000s is where like geek culture started really sort of uh, coming into its own. I wonder what, what kind of an unstoppable nerd would you have been had you seen this in high school? There's the question. Well, we need to track some of those kids down. I would like to think that if I was, you know, born like 15 to 20 years later, like, my God, I'd be unstoppable. <laughs> sure, me too. I'd have no hang-ups or shame about some of the stuff I was into. <laughs> for starters, we'd be we'd both be twenty five, which would be nice. <laughs> Look, I, I won't uh, say yeah, no, no but it's interesting. Like, I think that um, you know, I'm talking about like when I grew up, it was Revenge of the Nerds, and it was um, you know, it was it was a there was this sort of idea that the nerds were um probably going to take over the earth one day, but they weren't going to do it yet, and uh, we could still you know, it was still a good idea to make fun of them and beat up on them until that point, and and you know, Star Wars and things like this, these were all very much the domain of the of, of the nerds and the um, people that were into the sort of counterculture stuff. And now all of that stuff's basically mainstream now, right? I mean, you would say that, but obviously back then we were more interested in hard sci-fi. <laughs> um, one of the things I've always thought about Freaks and Geeks, I mean, you know, my disappointment, I guess, I, I've never been the massive uh, fan of Paul Fig or um, Judd Shut Apatow. There's I, I, stuff I like, but... It always sort of felt like that was the Freaks and Geeks feels like it was the kind of, you know, the early punk rock sort of stuff. And then, you know, they kind of became more and more um, normie. Yeah, more and more like mainstream friendly and more like classic rock and more kind of like uh, top 40 commercial pop as the movies and, and things went on. And it was interesting. But like, of course, we were able to, um, you know, we have many heroes of modern of the modern day that came out of that. Um, none other than, of course, Seth Rogen. Uh, my personal hero, uh, one of my many personal heroes. Um, and, you know, I've, I've very much enjoyed h him going off onto his own sort of offshoot of, of, his, of um, I guess, you know, kind of Cheech and Chong drug humour and stuff like that, but modernising <laughs> yeah. that uh, I've, I've found really interesting. And, you know, he's been a little bit activist about that kind of stuff as well, which has been pretty cool. Um, and then, of course, you had James Franco, who was everybody's hero for a while there uh, i think the jury's still out on whether um he's a total sleaze bag or not but um or is it or has it been decided that he is but i don't know he, he didn't seem to fully get cancelled and he still kind of does that stuff but for for a bunch of years there he was certainly 
you know, a massive force in Hollywood. Well, I mean, he hosted the Academy Awards one year. Yeah, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Did he really? He really um, did. It, it was not well received. <laughs> so obviously, um, well, that's good to know, I guess. But, you know, and obviously, you know, like, and there was a lot of... Well, uh, let's, know, let's just talk about some of the rest. Something was going on. Let's talk about some of the rest of the cast of this. So Linda Cardellini, who's the main star, Lindsay Weir. So she went on to be an ER for about 10 years. Uh, she's that's also right, currently yeah. in a Netflix show called Dead, Dead to Me. I think the name of the show is. It's very popular. I don't really care for it very much. But anyways, her and Christina Applegate doing stuff. Uh, she was also in a Scooby-Doo movie. She played Velma. So, you know, she's suddenly been <laughs> off, like, fairly successful. John Francis Daly, who plays her brother Sam, who we heard in a clip a short while ago, uh, he's gone off to... He was a star of Bones, so he was one of the supporting actors in that for uh, quite a few years. Uh, but he went yeah, off to become a screenwriter, where he's written, like, a whole bunch of fairly big movies. Uh, so I think he wrote one of the Spider-Man movies and... Uh, he wrote uh, the Vacation reboot film. You know, he's suddenly been around. <laughs> I think he wrote Game Night. Like, he's done some good stuff and some fairly mediocre stuff. Uh, James Franco, Sam Levine, who's a guy that crops up in a lot of TV. But unless you know him by face, you probably don't know Sam Levine by name so much. Uh, but Seth Rogen, who dominates, like, Hollywood nowadays pretty much effectively. Uh, Jason Siegel, <laughs> who was obviously in, like, the How I Met Your Mother series for years and years, and then went off to dominate Hollywood for quite a few years until he sort of went fallow for a little while. Uh, Martin Starr, who's still, like, around in, like, Silicon Valley and a whole bunch of indie films. That's right. Uh, Becky Ann Baker, who you still see on a whole bunch of different TV shows. Uh, Busy Phillips, who just had her own late-night TV show that got cancelled. Now, I'm reading the same list you are, and you skipped over Joe Flaherty. Well, I was there. getting back to and him. <laughs> Good, okay, fair enough. But then you've also got like some classics, you know, comedy greats in it. So people like Joe Flaherty, who played uh, Sam and Lindsay's father, um, Harold, who we also heard in a clip a moment ago. So he's from SCTV back in the day. Yeah, totally. And his list of films that he's been in is uh, insanely good. <laughs> Joe Flaherty, <laughs> I didn't realize until a couple of days ago, is at the end of Back to the Future 2. He's the guy totally, from the yeah. uh, like post office. I'm, I'm reading his Wikipedia now. He plays the doorman in Who's Harry Crumb? The... um the uh, John Candy classic. He's just he's got bit parts in some fantastic movies. Uh, Club Paradise, which is a weird um, Ron Williams, Harold Ramis directed crazy film, which I watched recently and is just nuts. Like the height of Coke weirdness. Um, One Crazy Summer he was in, which is the Savage Steve Holland um, predecessor to uh, Better Off Dead. Yep. Um like this is this is all this is straight in in my um wheelhouse here uh so yeah it's kind of <laughs> he was just incredible and then of course going forward he was in um happy gilmore he was in detroit rock city he was in just like yeah yeah terrible who's amazing who? comedy roles <laughs> i didn't know he was from second city though that's really interesting yeah so and that's kind of what mm. his big sort of breakout was not at all surprising yeah he's still going too but when you go through the series, like the number of people in like just supporting roles, like in one or two episodes along the way, it's just incredible. Uh, so we mentioned Back to the Future a moment ago. Uh, the guy who played Biff in the Back to the Future films, uh, Thomas F. Wilson. He's a regular supporting character in this, playing the coach at the, at the high school. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, but then you've also got other people like Lizzie Kaplan is in a whole bunch of episodes in a fairly sort of backgroundy kind of a role. Uh, people that you'd know by face, uh, so people like Sam McMurray, who's someone that you've definitely seen and stuff before, but you won't necessarily know. Uh, Kevin Teige as well. Uh, Amy Aquino. 
And then it's like people who've kind of become big since then. So people like Ann Dowd, um, Ben Foster, who was a really big deal for about five or 10 years there, but he's kind of got a bit quiet sort of recently. Uh, David Crumholtz, who you definitely know who that guy is. If, certainly it's not by name. Uh, Shia LaBeouf sent an episode. Wow. Um, who else I love Seth McMurray. Wasn't he in... Um, Seth McMurray was in a... Uh... Coen Brothers movie, wasn't he? Isn't he in... Um... Oh, look, that dude's just been in everything. He's so good. <coughs> can we do a, Can we do another podcast that's just called What's That Dude Been In? And we just like, pick a <laughs> person and then I read all the names of all the stuff they've been in off, um, uh, off Wikipedia. If anyone's interested in that, just drop us a line. Yeah, yeah we'll do that as a Patreon special. <laughs> uh, David Keckner's in an episode. You've got Ben Stiller in another episode. Like, you know, there's just some yeah, really cool people nuts, that just crop up throughout the uh, run of it all. But yeah. Yeah, amazing stuff. But yeah, so what I was particularly interested in was there was this, this run of four episodes right at the very end. And if you've never seen the show before, I apologize that I'm about to do this to you, but I'm just going to talk about what happened in some of these episodes. Because if you haven't seen it for a while, like you'll remember the episodes because I think they're just phenomenal. But the final four are really particularly interesting because you've got, it's 18 episodes all up. And by the time that they reach this, effectively, you know who all the characters are, you know what their perspectives are, you know where they've come from, you understand their emotional journeys. And they do go on journeys sort of throughout this. But at the very end, they're really yeah. particularly interested in establishing what each of the characters' like sense of identity is and where they see themselves going. And it seems like the last four episodes, even though I know that only one episode was built to be a final episode, but it really just feels like they're wrapping up the entire show within these four episodes by just giving a final sort of coda as to who they all are. So these are the final four episodes. You've got an episode called Noshing and Moshing, which is this episode where Neil kind of comes of age. He discovers the truths about his parents' marriage. And because he's all of like 14 years old, he's not quite ready to be thrown into like an adult world like this. But he discovers that his father's been cheating on his mum. And then at this party, he discovers that his mum has actually known about this for a while. And she tells him not to worry about it. They're working through their relationship. And like, he's really sort of taken aback at this. And everything he thought he understood about the world is just like completely upended entirely. And he comes to terms with the fact that there's this adult world that sort of surrounds everything that he thought, kind of thought he understood about the world. And it's just kind of nice. Like, it's like a really sort of, it's an honest story, which is what Freaks and Geeks are very much about. Yeah. yeah I mean, well, you've got like the Daniel character who's pushing the boundaries of his own identity as he starts exploring the punk scene and doing it in like the most sort of shallow, terrible way possible. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's probably my favorite episode of the run, which is this episode called Smooching and Mooching, which has, it's a really strong geeks episode because the three boys go to their first ever makeout party. And so they've very much like thrown into like the sort of confront, like it's a confronting experience for them because they know they're going to have to step up and possibly kiss someone. And, you know, that, that's an ordeal in itself, as I'm sure we can totally. all agree. So you've got that going on. Meanwhile, they've also got the uh, Nick character played by Jason Siegel. His dad sold his drum kit on him, which has prompted Nick just to leave the family home. And so he's like trying to bum around on like everyone's couches and like no one wants to house him because, you know, he's just kind of awful. Anyway, he ends up landing at the Weir household. And what's kind of interesting here is that it's about Nick sort of confronting his own relationship with his dad. Okay. Because he starts forming a bond with Lindsay's dad. And like, that's kind of an interesting story in itself. But what's kind of cool about this show, because we know who these characters are and where they've come from, when they actually show what the episode's really doing, which is a reflective story, which is... Sure, Nick's going through this experience with his own dad, but you're actually watching Lindsay looking at the way that her dad is acting with Nick, her friend, 
And she's like got this profound realization that Nick's relationship with her dad seems to be better than her own relationship with her dad. Like her dad's actually sort of fairly open and wants to be friendly and supportive of Nick. And it's just this great moment. I couldn't find the clip for it. I was trying to get the audio for it and I was, uh, had some tech issues, but it's just this great moment where uh, her dad's standing in the doorway and explains to her that the only reason I'm not with you is because you actually are my daughter. And it's actually hard for me to be able to do this with you, whereas a complete stranger, I can kind of do that. And this guy kind of needs it. And it was like this sort of real sort of interesting moment that sort of opened up their relationship that we've seen over the previous 17 episodes and just kind of gave it like an extra like bit of angle to it. Like you actually saw the characters confronting themselves mm. and where they've been. Like it was, yeah, just a bit of clever TV. Uh, there's an episode called The Little Things, which would probably work as the final episode of the show, but it isn't quite... And you got the Seth, uh, Seth Green character. Sorry, Seth Green just needs to be mentioned in every episode of Always <laughs> Be Watching. Right. There you go. Tick, ding. <laughs> Seth Rogen's character. Uh, he's been seeing this girl for a few episodes and his girlfriend comes out as intersex. And so he starts questioning his own sexuality then. And also how he views himself through the way that his friends look at him. And he's concerned that that's going to change and like what that means for him. And so he's on a bit of a soul search there. Meanwhile, Sam realizes that Cindy Sanders, who's the cheerleader girl at school that he's been pining after for the entire series run, he's actually been dating her and discovers that she's actually really, really awful. Uh, he takes her to see the Steve Martin film, The Jerk, and she doesn't find it funny. She, she hates likes, it. She hates it. She's got <laughs> her arms totally crossed through the whole that. thing. It's fantastic. But what's kind of great about the episode is that it's all got this thing with Lindsay sort of in the background. It's not a major storyline, but it kind of like gives this coda for what she's been doing this entire series. And that's why I think it kind of works as like a final episode for the show. But Lindsay's been given the chance to ask a visiting vice president, George Bush, who's coming to the high school. She's been like selected to ask him one question. And so the idea is that there's going to be like a little... um, lunchtime thing where he's standing up in the hall and so she'll be able to stand up ask that one question and because of the journey we've seen her on which is that she's hanging out with like all these burners and so she's come from a point where she's a straight a student she's got like this sort of anti-authority edge to her now and so as we've been watching that build through the 17 episodes prior it comes to the point where she gets to ask the vice president of the country a question and so she asks a very smart question but also one that challenges authority entirely and so it's kind of like this complete, like, it's the cherry on top of what the series had been doing until that point. And while that could be the last episode of the show, it isn't, because they give it one more episode, which has Lindsay choosing to uh, not go to some academic summit that she's been invited to. And she tells her family that she's off to do that, gets on the bus to go and do it. But the final moments of the show have her getting off the bus and then following the Grateful Dead around on a tour for the next two or three weeks without her family knowing about it. And it's like the most perfect Amazing. ending to the series. In a way that last week's most perfect ending wasn't the most perfect ending because there was just one more to do. It's so funny. I remember all four of those episodes really clearly. And yeah. as I scanned through some of the other ones, I remember a couple of the other ones, but um, nowhere near as well as any of those four. Like, and that's you're it. Right. There, was a there really is so much emotional resonance in those four episodes. And they say so much about what the show is. And I wonder if you haven't watched those four episodes, if your passion for the show would be far diminished. Like, I don't totally. think it's the show that you remember it as because it's those four episodes that really just, like, just bring it all together. Excellent stuff. Yeah, I really, uh, well, I've been inspired to watch it again. I, I, I guess one of the reasons I haven't watched it again is because of how wet um, so much of the, you know, Judd Apatow stuff is and got. And it just kind of, like, put a bit of a, yeah, it didn't sour it in any way, but it just made me less enthusiastic to go back and check it out. I was like, oh, maybe I was kind on that show and it was probably maybe it was a bit more um 
uh, you know, maybe it was not as interesting as I remember it. And it was more just because there was less interesting things at the time. So that's nice to have your reappraisal of it uh, still resonating as strongly as it did and picking up more stuff like that from it. That's great. Yeah. And look, I would actually say that, um, you know, being like, I don't think I've seen it for maybe like 10 years or so. Yeah. And just being a little bit older, I think I was just like a bit more attuned to what the show was going mm. for. That's awesome. Is that available to watch in any uh, modern way or do we have to get DVDs? Look, I was literally watching it off like a DVD set that I found when I was cleaning a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so yeah, I don't right. know where it is at the moment. I know it was on Netflix like maybe about three or four months ago. I don't know if it's still there or not. I should have looked that up. No. Yeah, no, I thought it disappeared. Oh, but Dead to Me is there. That's interesting. That came up straight away. Or did you say that? Is it a Netflix? Oh, yeah, yeah so that's a Netflix series, so... Yeah, that would be there. Yeah, cool. But yeah, yeah, Freaks and Geeks, if you can find it in whatever way you can. Uh, it might even be on stand maybe at the moment. Who knows? It's only a show that pops up on it pops up on platforms here and there. Awesome. Yeah. Anyway, Chris, I reckon it's time to get out. What do you think? It's, yes, it's time to wrap this up. I got I got a life to live, Dan. I can't just talk about TV all the time. I got TV to watch. I gotta <sighs> go watch some TV. So much TV. I've got episodes <laughs> of Perry Mason to watch. Oh yeah. Catch up on that. You should watch the whole two hundred and seventy one of the original series and uh, before you get back. Don't joke, because I'm actually about four or five episodes deep on the original series. <laughs> I bet you are. Anyway, um, folks, this has been Always Be Watching. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, leave reviews if whatever platform you're listening to this through supports such things. Uh, if you're listening on Spotify, maybe share it with some friends, like hit that share button, get people listening to the pod. Uh, subscribe to the newsletter. We've got the Always Be Watching newsletter. Each day, interesting news screen and screen stories, you know, delivered straight to your inbox. Give that a look. Uh, on Fridays, when, a fun thing to do when you get the e email is to send Dan an email straight back, criticizing either something he's written in it or one of his opinions. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, yeah, I do get about four or five of those each day, all from Chris, <laughs> all from me. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, do that. It's a lot of fun. It's Australia's favorite game right now. <laughs> all right, let's get out of here, Chris. It has been a pleasure. We'll be back next week doing more watching as we do always. We'll see you then. See you then, Dan.